listening to the Retro Sermons podcast. Find out more at northcolumbuschristians.com slash retro sermons.
truly is a joy to welcome our visitors. You're truly a visitor tonight. I mean, you're determined if you're here. And that pleases us more. We welcome you. And it's certainly good to have those from the area who've traveled a long distance and to have old friends in the audience. We welcome each and every one. The week's been most enjoyable and the most exciting week to me. I'll make some personal comments at the end. Uh, we'll have a question period at the end. So as we're addressing a very, very serious topic tonight, you feel very free to think with me and challenge the Scripture looking at what is said. Feel free to raise any question that you would have to consider the importance of the issue. We've looked at some tough questions religiously, not dealing with things that are just so light and fluff, but things that every person must answer somewhere along the way. The issue that we're looking at tonight is a troubling issue to a great number of people. And when they consider the concept of one true church somewhere, there are all sorts of very strong and very negative reactions. And so I would phrase this as a question first for you to consider. And we will look at it from a biblical standpoint. Is there one true church somewhere? When we answer that question, then we'll know which way we ought to head and what we ought to do from that point on. We live in a world that doesn't like clear and definite answers. We live in a pluralistic world. A world where you can be this way or that way and it's not supposed to make an awful lot of difference where there's little certainty that's there. And so when I ask the question, is there one true church somewhere, there are some who do not want to answer it because of the conclusions that are forced on them. If we're determined to take what the Bible says and look for biblical answers, though, there are going to have to be some very faithful, obedient attitudes that are expressed when we ask the question, does the Bible ever talk about one true church? And the Bible has an awful lot to say about that in different ways. For example, it talks about the one body. In Ephesians, the second chapter, in verse 16, and it makes a strong point about that one body by talking about it in contrast to the difference between Jews and Gentiles that he might reconcile both unto God in one body, is saying that here is a world of difference between two groups of people. In some way, in God's plan and in God's wisdom, he's going to bring very separate people, people who have antagonized each other over the centuries and bind them together in one body. He's going to be able to cross every barrier and every difference that's there. It's going to be by the cross. The enmity that was there, that was a part of the old law, that was intended to shut up the Jews into a confined group to protect them, to bring Jesus Christ in the world, is going to be broken down. And someone will say, well, that's one body. Is that talking about the church? In Ephesians, the first chapter, in verse 22 and 23, we read, and hath put all things under his feet, this is Christ, and gave him to be head over all things to the church. And then he explains, the sentence doesn't end there, you see, which is his body. 
the body and the church are the same. And it is a figure of speech when the church is described as a body. A body has cohesiveness. It has unity about it. Each part depends on the other part. And the parts that seem unimportant are very, very important at some point along the way. So when Paul is talking about one body, he's talking about one church. That is the essence of all that Jesus Christ was to be. It was the fullness of him that filleth all in all. This is re-emphasized then when we go on to Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verses four through six. There is one body. Again, the figure of speech of the church. There's one church in one spirit, one Holy Spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. It's very easy for someone to say, I agree that there's one Spirit. I agree there's one Jesus Christ. There's one God the Father. I think there's one hope of our calling. That's four out of seven. But there are problems with the one baptism. There are problems with one faith, most definitely, one system of belief. And there are then the problems of considering the issue of one body. And there are going to be people that respond in different ways. There are going to be some who respond to say, well, you know, in the New Testament times, there was just one body. That's the way it was. He started one, there was just one. But if you look closely at Scripture, you see that there were more than just one group in many places. For example, in Acts the 20th chapter, in verse 28 through 31, he says of the elders at Ephesus that some of them were going to leave the truth and take disciples away from them. They were going to not spare the flock and be grievous wolves. And what that would say is that there were two bodies, not one at that place then in Ephesus. And then there are other examples of that where there were two bodies. In other words, there what you just can't say, well, there was just one. That's all you had to think about. In 1 John 2.19, John said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. They were with us at one time. But there was a difference. There was something different in their heart. There was something different in their desire. And so in New Testament times, you did have the separation and the choice that had to be there. And you cannot ignore the passages about one body and just throw them away and say, that was the way it was back then, it's different, and it doesn't apply. Then there are others who would say, well, the one body is a figure of speech of everyone who's sincere in any group. Isn't there just one true church? Isn't the one true church just the group of sincere people out of every religious group? And here is a religious group, here's some hypocrites, here's sincere people. They're really trying to do what the religious group says. That's the part of the true church there. Well, here's another religious group. These people are sincere and moral. These people are hypocrites. The part of the one true church is that group there, even though these people may sprinkle and these people don't. These people would baptize. or These people believe there are three in the Godhead and these people believe there's one in the Godhead. 
when we consider, is this just a broad figure of speech of sincerity, we see that there are all sorts of passages of Scripture that teach us that there is more than just sincerity that is involved, that God expected a unity of truth, a unity of belief. In 1 Corinthians 1 and 10, when there were some leading disciples in the church at Corinth who had evidently natural leadership, and yet they were untaught fully, and they were speculating here and speculating there, coming up with a different conclusion over here. And there were groups that were collecting around the different teachers. Paul immediately, after he starts his epistle, hits the problem. And he says, that can't be. What was at Corinth was exactly what's there in modern denominationalism. It's all right to believe this, all right to believe that, it's all right to believe that, as long as you're sincere. But what Paul said was, now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the strength by which he approaches this. There are two build, two steps of build-up to say, do this, this is serious. I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So what he's expecting is not sincerity of practice and great differences of judgment and of mind and doctrine, but he's expecting them to all speak the same thing. That somewhere that one body is built around the same teaching that there is a unity and a harmony that they're bound together with the same mind and the same judgment. Well, there are people who would respond to that and say, well, couldn't we achieve that today if everybody was of a good spirit and kind, tender-hearted, adaptable disposition? We'd just have a, a conference or a council. We'd have a big meeting. If everybody had compromised, Everybody ought to get together and sit down and agree on what we believe. Couldn't everyone just sit down and agree together on what they thought? Would that give us the one true church, the one body? We read, though, in passages such as Romans, the 16th chapter, verse 17 and 18, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned. Now, here's what has to be there. And if you were to set a group of men down, and they luckily, one out of a million shots, came up with the same thing that Paul said, that'd be fine. But there's little likelihood of that happening when you call a conference, and this one gives up something, and this one gives up something else, and they water it down to the, the easiest, most neutral kind of statement about the littlest agreement, there's a little chance that that's the same that Paul taught. And if you're not going to teach this, you're causing divisions and offenses. When you teach something different, it's something contrary. And they cannot be ignored. You can't say, well, that's too bad. They, they should have done that. But don't, don't get worried about that. Because he said, that's serious. It's serious enough that you ought to identify it. And you ought to mark it. You ought to make it clear. 
And there are brethren that don't want you to mark. There are brethren that don't want you to say this is wrong and this is what is said or to, to label or identify. And yet that's exactly what Paul is saying. He continues and shows the seriousness of uh, someone who would say, well, just let us all agree. It doesn't make any difference what we would agree. Or he says, for they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches, deceive the hearts of the simple. So here are pleasant men with great speaking talent. And they sound appealing. But the result is if they don't agree with the original doctrine, that they are deceiving the hearts of those who are not perceptive or wise enough to look for what God would say. The issue of choosing between all the different religious groups is a, is a tough choice. When you talk about this, one of the things that frightens people is they say, well, Brother Comer, I, you know, there are 1,200 religious groups in America. How in the world can you even know what a hundred of them believe or the 50 biggest ones? How can you know what they believe? Are you going to have to study every group to find the one true church somewhere? And this would answer that. This says that all you have to know is the original doctrine. All you have to know is what Paul said. And if you know that, then you know what the one true church is. And if someone teaches something different, you know it's not the one true church. So when you set your heart, don't allow fears to tell you you've got to know everything anybody's ever said religiously. All you have to know is have that eager, sincere desire to really know God's Word. And brethren, I'll tell you, it's different today. One of the things that's happening today is people are not talking about the Bible, and brethren don't even want to know that much. Brethren want to know enough to satisfy themselves. Years ago, when you had to know enough to discuss down at the country store with somebody of another religious group, Brethren would study. But today, all you have to know is enough to satisfy yourself because someone else is not going to talk to you much about it. It's hard to get a religious discussion. And so brethren get sleepy when you talk about doctrine because it doesn't mean very much to them because they're not being stirred with the question. You need to stir your heart. You need to stir your curiosity. You need to raise the questions. You need to want to know because the, of the importance of the, the doctrine that was there originally. Another passage that's like that, Galatians, the first chapter, verses 6 through 9. Here, Paul says, I marvel that you are so quickly removing from him, this is the American standard, from him that called you in the grace of Christ unto a different gospel, which is not another. You, you've gone to something entirely different, all you've done, you here's here, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. And back here in the Old Testament, there was circumcision. That was the mark of the covenant back then. So some people have gone over here and brought in circumcision and added that to this list. Not a major kind of change, but he said that changed the whole doctrine. And that changed the whole gospel. He said it's not another, which is not another, uh, like the gospel, 
only that there are some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven should preach unto you any gospel other than that which we preached unto you, let him be anathema. And then he emphasizes it again. As I, as we have said before, so say I now again, if any man preach, preacheth unto you any gospel other than that which ye received, let him be anathema. So the double emphasis. I uh, had a phone call today and uh, someone felt that they had seen an angel and the angel was there and though they knew little or nothing about the Bible, they felt that they had received some kind of direction or message or revelation from God. We need to know God's Word. And when we know it, then we can know the things that have been added or the things that have been taken away. Well, there are brethren who say, well, we could find the one true church if all we're talking about in the one true church is the plan of salvation. After all, in Galatians, they added circumcision to the plan of salvation, and that was wrong. Circumcision was unimportant otherwise, but in that situation, it's wrong. Shouldn't our areas of agreement be limited only to questions about the plan of salvation? And that would make a, a, a simpler kind of choice if that's what God wanted or that's what God said. Unfortunately, God was much more specific than that. And the doctrine and the gospel of the one true church involved much more. For example, in 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, in verse 1 through 3, now the Spirit, we want you to know where it came from, it's not Paul making it up, speaketh expressly. That's emphatic. He wants you to know this is important. That in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith. That's pretty serious, but he doesn't stop there. He makes it more important. Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Speaking lies in hypocrisy. In hypocrisy. Having their conscience seared with a hot iron. There are four things there that he says show the seriousness of this. He's just trying for you to understand how important these particular issues are. There's the falling away first. But then he builds it up with its seduction. There's something at work here that the devils have their doctrines and they teach them their lies that are given in hypocrisy. They're people who've seared their conscience. Now, what are the issues? Well, the first one is forbidding to marry. The second is commanding to abstain from meats. But Paul encouraged people not to marry, 1 Corinthians 7. But when somebody decided they were going to take this strong point and make it a law, he became a false teacher. He added to the truth. And occasionally we have brethren that think that brethren don't have enough sense to apply an example. And they're just going to have to write a law for them that it can't be this way. You've got to do this. And they take something that was a, in the area of option that Paul strongly encouraged and they bring it in and they make a law. And when they do, they're guilty of false doctrine. Paul encouraged people in Romans 14, uh, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, to abstain from meats under certain situations. Somebody that came in and made a law there 
has added to the gospel, and he's a false teacher. Now, that's certainly a lot more than the plan of salvation. And when someone comes along and says, well, we ought not to get excited about anything but just the plan of salvation, we forget that there are all these other things that are a part of salvation. I have an interesting man who listened to our TV program. We had a call-in, question-answer TV program and, uh, at that time, and uh, he was a man who just sort of read the Bible, who didn't study, and he had 500 questions. And he had questions about things that would never occur to anybody else, I suppose, or not anyone I'd talk to. And he had 38 or at least 35 things that he said were essential to salvation. Now, he did not put them in order, and he didn't say which has to come first, but what I'm saying is there are a lot of things that are essential to salvation after you are initially saved. After you become a Christian, there are a lot of things that will condemn you. Do you have to agree on all 35? And then do you have to agree even beyond that? So in the one true church, you can't say, oh, it's just this small area of truth that we need to seek, we need to agree on. Well, someone would say, well, if we could just go back to the original and look for that group that's at least uh, 967 years old or relatively like that, that that would be the one true church, wouldn't it? No, back to the point we made earlier, there's some people who are going to fall away from the faith. They were going to depart from the faith. And that would be a very, very old group. Or, back to 1 John 2.19. This would have been a very old group. They would have been around Christians. They were with, with them, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they're not all of us. And that raises another point that some brethren ask themselves or think about. And that is, would God ask us to make a hard choice, a difficult choice? Would God expect us to have to read and search and dig and spend some time to find out what's right? Would He create the one true church in such a way that there would be difficulty in finding it? If you go back to the end of that passage in 1 John 2.19, He said, that this was to be made manifest that they were not all of us. That the reason for separation sometimes is to force you to make a choice. Because there's a difference in attitude. There's a difference in what people want. And somebody on the outside has got to decide which one is right. There is a stronger point made like that in 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter and verse 19. This is the American Standard, and just for emphasis a little bit, uh, I've added the, the New International. In 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, Paul is talking about the division at Corinth. And he says, For there must be also factions among you, that they that are approved may be made manifest among you. Now, why must there be factions? That sounds terrible. Well, there are different attitudes. There were different beginning points. There were some, evidently, who are approved and some who weren't approved. And so he said that one of the reasons that you have the problem, one of the reasons you have to make the choice 
is to force yourself to face who's approved. And they will be made manifest. They will be evident. They're not going to be evident just with a casual question. Well, I wonder who's right. But with some kind of effort, they will be made manifest. The New International simplifies the translations, not as accurate, but here it says, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Well, that may be adding a little bit that it, from a biblical standpoint. The approval is God's approval. And the, the point's true whether or not it ought to be translated that way. And this, the simplicity of this makes the point. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Well, that brings us then to the serious question is if there is one true church somewhere and it is to be even in New Testament times sought out and you are to look for it, what do you do to find the one true church? What do you have to do to be approved? The word in 1 Corinthians 11.19 of approved is an interesting word. We find it again in 2 Timothy, the second chapter, in verse 15, where he says, study to show thyself approved unto God. If you want God's approval, how do you have God's approval? Well, the first thing is that you give diligence. There's a question about this word is translated give diligence. And the King James people uh, translated it as study. Maybe that misses a part of the point. But it's, it is work to study. It does take diligence to study. And when you put an effort into it, when you really want to know what God's Word says, when you are fearful of the odds, you know what are the odds that Harold Comer happened to find the truth? If most people are lost, and few there be that find it, what are the mathematical odds that I'd happen to find the truth? They'd be pretty short, wouldn't they? And the only way I defeat those odds is if I want the truth, I care for the truth, and I love the truth, and I'll put the effort in to finding it. I'll give the diligence. I'll give the study. I'll ask the questions. I'll have the curiosity. And in a world where we are entertained, where we don't study, where we're given trivial, quick answers by TV, there is something marvelous and appealing. There is something unusual and unique in the concept of really wanting it and digging for it and hunting for it. And yet in all that, you tell God that you're important to me. I want to know what you have to say. And so you ask questions. You build up your curiosity. If you have a question tonight, feel free to raise it during the question period. Or ask Colin or ask me or one of the elders before you get away. I sometimes take college students and when they visit, I tell them, you know, we really appreciate you coming. And if you see something that's a little different or unusual, don't hesitate to ask a question. Because we think questions ought to be asked. And you're not going to ask any question that's offensive. 
If it's a question, it's driven by curiosity. If it's a question, there ought to be an answer for it. And we ought not to be offended or distressed. We ought to be excited that somebody cares enough that they want to know and they'll make the effort. Along with that, we see, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman. And we'd emphasize the work. There's going to be some effort that's involved. It's not going to be just impossible, but it'd be worth 15 years of your life, wouldn't it? To see and search. It would be worth hours of study to look. So there's work that's needed. A workman that needs not to be ashamed. Did you ever think how you're going to feel when you get to the day of judgment and you heard the truth and you were almost persuaded by it, but you never checked and you, you never really assured yourself and you never really did what the, the truth was. And God reviews your case. He reviews the record of the sins that are there. And you think, man, I had it. It was right there. I even wanted to do it. But I just never was sure. And I never would ask the questions. And, and finally, I, I just thought, oh, it's not worth the effort. And what kind of shame is going to be there when you say, I was so close, but I never really knew and I never really did it. There is shame in the Day of Judgment for those who are not going to, to make the effort and find in the end that there was the truth right there and it was so close that they never made the effort. Rightly dividing the word of truth, I think identifies the process of study that has to go on. You see, God has, as any kind of grouping of laws would do, ha has to be grouped and organized. They have to be related. All the scriptures on the plan of salvation are not in one passage in a one, two, three, four, five order. All the scriptures on worship are not in a, a certain place, codified and, and all organized. It depends on your desire to know. In the same way in most companies, the laws are not all organized. The boss is not always saying the same thing. If you want to be a good employee, you have to want to know the company rules. If you want to be a good citizen, you have to want to know the rules of the state. If I were to move to Florida, there are certain tax laws that I'd have to want to know. And nobody's going to say, oh, we got a new member in, in the, the state of Florida, new person, send him all the tax code. And keep it so simple that he can read it and understand it. No. They just expect me to want to know and find out. And so I start asking members of the church, well, what do you do about this? And what about property taxes? And what about refunds? And what about mortgage exemptions? And on and on. And the information I get is not highly accurate always. But I get enough of it and I sort of find out what the law is. In the same way we learn on the job the same way when we come to God's Word, we're completely furnished every good work. The information is there. But God has expected you to want to know. And there is a, a, a concept that you've got to collect it together, that you've got to group, you've got to understand, and you've got to do this in the right way. 
You can do it in the wrong way if your attitude's wrong. On the other hand, if you will do His will, you'll know that it's from Him, John would say. Well, you need to study. You need to be curious. You need to raise questions. And tonight, if you're interested in the one true church, let me encourage you that you make a commitment to yourself right now. That I'm going to ask questions of the best people that I can. That I'm going to be curious. Colin has some great lessons. And the elders teach some great lessons. There are simple beginning points. And there are all sorts of opportunities for you to say, well, what does the Bible say? Let me see it in Scripture. Don't just tell me. Let me see it. And when you read it, and when it's clear, and when it's simple, and you say, somewhere out there there's one true church, then what you need to say is when I find out what that church did, what was there, I'm going to give my life to it. You know one thing that makes us different and alike? And this is not, not anything of pride at all. But I tell you, one thing about God's people is if they are ever there, if there's anybody who's God's people, they're going to be a people who want to know the truth. And they love the truth. And when they find the truth, they commit themselves to it. And there are a lot of people who are really weird who do that. There are a lot of unusual people who want to know the truth. And when they, they want to know the truth and they do it, they become my brother. They become my sister. When you start out, you start out with that curiosity. You start out seeking the one true church. You set your mind that you're going to find what He has given and that whatever it takes, that you're going to raise the questions and you're going to begin the study. And some of you have been very good about coming to every night of this gospel meeting and we welcome you and it's a thrill that you're that curious and that interested. But you need to carry it farther. And you need to ask the questions. And you need to seek and hunt for that one true church that's there somewhere. We sing the song about following Jesus. And we raise the question, will you follow Him? And who will follow Him? We call on you, if you're an erring Christian, to come back and follow Him. If you are walking in the ways of the world and you're troubled, you know you're a sinner, upon your belief, we challenge you to make a decision, make a commitment. Repent. Step out and come forward. Confess your belief in Him. And be baptized for the remission of your sins. When you do that, you're walking in Jesus' footsteps and following in His commandments. As we sing, won't you consider and won't you come while we stand and sing?
Please be seated. 